Right now, we're in week two of a series that we're calling Bad Theology. Bad Theology. Why are we doing a series called Bad Theology? Well, in our soundbite-driven, individualistic, consumeristic, and mass-produced world, there have been disastrous consequences on discipleship in the Western church. Rich words that were once full of meaning in the original context of Scripture, like glory and grace and faith, have been stripped down into overly simplified slogans, like grace as only being unmerited favor, or the uh, acronym God's Redemption at Christ's Expense. They may be easy to remember, but they fail to sweep us into the mysterious amazing reality that they're intended to convey. The paradox of being human image bearers living in the presence of our infinite God. Bad theology relieves all the tension and mystery of those two or more equal truths for the sake of a clean, comfortable system of doctrine that is palatable and easily transmissible. That's bad theology. Good theology, on the other hand, embraces complexity, is okay with tension, love, and justice, these things that the gospel itself presents us with the greatest tensions. Love and justice, suffering and joy, truth and grace, power and weakness, heaven and earth, judgment and mercy, God and man. This bad theology series is seeking to recover to some degree for us in our moment what has been lost over the last century, the complex paradoxical roots of the gospel, restoring humanity to life in God, and the profound tensions that draw us into deeper reliance on God for our daily life. That's why this series matters, and we're, we're doing a little tiny bit. This is by no means going to be comprehensive for us. But what we want to do is rightly assess the foundational assumptions that we all come into a room this size with. We all have a variety of church backgrounds. Some of us are, have never been a part of a church before the Commons LA. Others of us have been a part of many churches before here and now. And all of us are probably feeling quite a bit of tension in what it looks like to follow Jesus meaningfully in 21st century Los Angeles, let alone in an urban university ecosystem. If you don't feel tension, you probably need this really badly because you've fallen off into one angle of the tension and scripture has much more to say that produces complexity. We feel that? Yeah, yeah. I know pastorally from meeting with many of you um, in conversation, this is, this is very real for us. So um, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We want to do with our bodies or lead our souls and spirits and community with our bodies by standing, remembering that this is the word of the Lord. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, we ask you to help us now. We believe that this is your word and that these first recorded words of yours in Mark are um, essential for us to understand 
the, the height of the mountain peaks that you in your incarnation and by your death and resurrection have brought about for us. So would you please, Holy Spirit, um, help us to see the complexity and the tensions of being human image bearers in a broken world with our perfect God, feeling our way together towards what your will for us is in this generation. So we trust you. We listen for you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can take a seat. So this morning, there's one simple goal. One simple goal, it's to ask this question. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? There are probably a lot of ways that we would describe the gospel if we were to field a survey around the room. Um, does anyone want to just shout out, what, what is the gospel? Good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Salvation by grace. Old Testament and New Testament. What's real? Whoa. Restoration with God. Making all things new. We got plenty of time. <laughs> what? Reconciliation with God. New life in Jesus. This is great. Hopefully, what you, what we all feel or sense, and even our minds get flooded with all of the complexity, all of the bigness, the vastness, the significance of Jesus. And there are so many things that cascade and avalanche into our hearts and minds for those of us who are familiar with the scriptures, for those of us who have been around the church for very long, for those of us who have, been, have had the, the joy of being discipled by someone who has walked with us into the deep, deep, wonders of the gospel. Here's why this question really matters. Because whatever you say is the gospel becomes the spring or the fountain from which flow all other things about the Christian life. If we put something that might be true and that scripture might teach in the place of gospel, we will find that not very far, not many degrees beyond that, not too far downstream from that fountain, um, some things will start to get dysfunctional. And I think, hopefully, what we'll see is that if we can keep the gospel the gospel and not say what is true but not the gospel, not the gospel but true, then hopefully what we do is we see the beauty and the richness of God coming into our reality and how everything changes. At the end of this, my real desire is that you would, you would know here, this is the gospel according to Jesus. And dang it, Jesus is trustworthy. And if I'm with him, I am secure. And if I'm with him, if I'm following him, I can trust him and know he will lead me into life that's really life. 
I mean, an another reason is because we're calling the series Bad Theology, Restoring or Recovering the Gospel, or the Biblical Tensions of the Gospel, and we need to define the Gospel if we're going to do that for the rest of the series. So there's also a functional piece of this. We're going to th make three simple observations and three uh, adjustments that the Gospel brings to us this morning, okay? Three observations about Jesus' preaching of the Gospel and three adjustments that I think it brings to our lives. The first, we're just going to walk through these two verses. Number one, after John was arrested, the text says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Galilee was a northern remote area of Israel. It was kind of like, um, it was beyond the suburbs, out in more the Area kind of like where I grew up, where it wasn't like you had a development where everyone lived right next to each other. It was more like, you know, your, Jesus's village might have had a couple hundred people in it, okay? He came there after John was arrested. So the life of Jesus is rooted in history. John, a particular moment in time, John the baptizer was arrested. And Jesus then came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. To whom? Jesus came teaching publicly. Crowds, not this inner group of disciples. The gospel to Jesus was truth to be lifted up and for which everyone was invited in. Gospel, though, was not a word that he came up with. The original Greek word for gospel is euangelion. Can everyone say euangelion? Wonderful. Euangelion. It was a word that was already known. When cities or nations were at war, um, there was no Twitter to get your immediate instant news that may or may not be reputable. You had to actually wait, sometimes even weeks or months after the event happened, to find out what had happened. I mean, can you imagine? No news. No newspaper. Something happened hundreds or thousands of miles away that would have radical ramifications for yours and my life. Like imagine Russia defeated Ukraine, took over all of Europe and was threatening America and we had no way of finding out about it until someone made their way back to us. So oftentimes there'd be a forerunner. Imagine like a, like a, a marathon runner bringing news of what had happened far, far away. They would bring depending on the news, uh, euangelion. They would bring good news to us if it were in our favor. Bad news, if I knew my Greek better, I could tell you what the word for bad news meant. Um, but good news was euangelion, was gospel. This word was not created by Christians, although it has rich meaning for us now. It was a word that was declarative about reality. It was not some spiritual news merely for those who opted into it, but cosmic declaration when Jesus comes declaring the gospel of God. Plutarch, a Greek philosopher and historian, wrote about the time, around the time of Jesus' birth, he wrote this, even after the battle at Mantinea, which Thucydides had described, the one who first announced the victory had no other reward for his glad tidings, gospel, euangelion, then a piece of meat sent by the magistrates from the public mess hall, right? It's recorded back then with these Greek names and locations. But what kind of euangelion is this that's unique to Jesus? 
This good news comes not from the front lines between states or cities at war, but from none other than heaven and earth. None other than heaven and earth. That is why Jesus came with a gospel of God. First observation, the gospel that Jesus declared was good news. It's good news. What's the content of this gospel? Observation number two, Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This phrase, the time is fulfilled, means that the good news that Jesus came preaching is long-awaited news. Uh, it's long-awaited news in the sense that the stage has been set, the pieces are in place, what was once far off has now come near. The time, not chronologically in the sense of the hands on a clock, but the moment in time is pregnant with meaning and significance. If you were an Israelite hearing Jesus say the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, your ears would burn with interest and curiosity. What do you mean? The time is fulfilled. We've been waiting for the time. Because for them, although they knew that God's presence is everywhere, he's the creator and he's holy, the theologians call that his omnipresence, right? God is everywhere all at once, he's God. His particular presence is not everywhere all at once. Those are not the same thing. That's why in the scriptures, there are accommodations made for God's particular presence to dwell among first the Israelites in the tabernacle, they're wandering through the wilderness, and then in the temple when they're rooted in Israel. But the particularity of that, if you go back and you read the scriptures, you see just how many things needed to be in order for that accommodation of God's particular presence to be had. And it wasn't just because there needed to be a big sacrificial system so that God up in the sky could be appeased with all of his people around on the earth through their sacrifices. It was a very real reality that shame and guilt weigh so heavily on humanity that if we are to enter into the presence of God who is light, we'd run away ashamed. It'd be terrifying. All of that, though, was not just kind of the stasis that God told his people. There was promises being made all throughout that time. Promises to Abraham, well, all the way back, Adam and Eve and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and all the prophets were pointing forward to a moment when God was going to come near himself. And so Jesus comes saying, all of that fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Red-blooded Americans, most of us, kingdom means next to nothing. We don't know kingdom. We are a democratic republic. Our ideas about what kingdom might mean Call, probably called to your imagination, if you're at all like me, some sort of monarch who wants to have authority over everything and impose rules upon us and maybe tax us whether or not we have representation. But Basileia, the original word for kingdom, was a kind of active kingdom. 
It's not God is staking claim over you and me like some monarch who's far away saying, you better obey my rules because I'm really pressing in on you. It was God's effective reign is here. He was distant before, though he was still over all things. Now his effective reign is here. What he says really goes now. He is taking hold of creation. That's so significant because it doesn't mean that you and I are just far off from God trying to please him, trying to satisfy him as though he gives us commands, but is not near and present to us. The kingdom of God for you and me is a a new kind of humanity where humans are participating in the life of God that we were made for. It's kind of like what God says and what God promises is what goes. And the power that is accessible to us is a new kind of power. The grain of the universe now flows in the direction of God's presence with us. Note what Jesus does not say, though. He doesn't say um, the forgiveness of God is here. He doesn't even say the salvation of God is here. He doesn't even say the love of God is here. Come on in. It's okay. Good morning. Come on in. These things that we oftentimes put at the heart of what the gospel is are not here found on Jesus' lips. Jesus says the gospel of God is that the kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom in the New Testament, salvation, and eternal life. I'll relieve some of the tension in the room right now. Kingdom, salvation, eternal life are all fairly interchangeable in the New Testament. There's one time that Jesus mentions eternal life. And it might be the only time that it's mentioned in the scriptures, though I did not look that up. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life. Okay, he's going to define it for us. That people, they, his disciples, this is in prayer to God among his disciples, this is eternal life. That they, my disciples, know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So for Jesus to say the kingdom of God is at hand, he's not saying salvation is here, forgiveness is here, so you can just trust God for eternity and figure it all out here and now. First meaning of the kingdom. God's new kingdom reality has created new rules for how the world works. Fundamental to discipleship. When, when Jesus says, follow me, is us learning the implications for being image bearers of God here and now, not far from God, left to our own resources, individually or even across humanity, but learning to live with God. If God is good and powerful and invites us into his work in the world, how does that change everything? That's why discipleship is essential. Because it does not come naturally to us to follow Jesus. 
That's why we have an order to how we do our gatherings. We're trying to emulate what it looks like to learn how to live with God in daily life. That's why we read our call to worship at the start of gatherings. For all who are weary and need rest. For all who are hurting and long for comfort. For all, for all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares. Because when God is here and near, everything about our felt and lived reality is different. We're not left to our own resources. The kingdom of God is at hand. So hopefully, if the Commons LA is your church family, committed to discipleship and learning the ways of Jesus, means your interior life will learn to be more fulfilled and satisfied in God who is accessible to you. That you would learn to live a life of love, patterned after Jesus, obeying his commands, not because you, you need to be morally clean before God. Jesus is taking care of that on the cross and resurrection. But because he wants to make you his hands and feet of love in the world. But if you've tried to do that, you realize it's, we're much more self-centered than we want to admit. So, God's new reality is here. Jesus was declaring it. And it's near. It is accessible. When Jesus uses the phrase, the kingdom is at hand, what he's calling to mind is, for us human beings who are riddled with our own inadequacy, our failures, our guilt, our shame, our fears of risk, we think following Jesus powerfully, living for him in the world, making a difference in other people's lives is for some other exclusive group of people. It's for them. They're probably better than I in a variety of ways, more full of faith, more prayerful than me, no more scripture than me. And we create a group that's not us. And we think that following Jesus is mainly for them. And when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, what he's saying and what is radical about his message is that God has come so near that anyone who opts in has full access. That ultimately comes to its fulfillment in the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which is not what this teaching is about, and so we're going to move on. Um, so what is this kingdom like? I was trying to think through some sort of metaphor to help us understand because if Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, how, does, how should we imagine how his presence here and the giving of his spirit affects our, our lives? What sort of radical readjustment does this make? And I think, if you, if you remember back in Ephesians when Brian Eliff was doing the teaching um, and talking about the age, the differences in ages, and how now the kingdom of God is the age that we live in. It's here, it's present, it's real. He made a sound. Anybody remember the sound that he made? <laughs> he went like this. Heaven is not so much distant and far, it's more a dimension that can be lived into here and now. And he went. It's like that time in movies when someone passes through some like dimension and it goes, wah, 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 Can't even necessarily see it, but you know something is different. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So the different, that's right, the man himself. So 
the New Testament, after Jesus, after he gives his life to remove sin from being in the picture anymore between us and God and breathes new life into us through his life, death, burial, resurrection, sending of the Spirit, the rest of the New Testament is unpacking how to live into that dimension. Because, here's the thing, God wants us to participate in his kingdom. He wants to maintain yours and my free will in the midst of his wondrous sovereignty so that we would freely receive his love and give his love. And so, the environment that we are seeking to cultivate, the woo-woo-woo dimension that that this room is supposed to be filled with is one where Jesus is present. So we don't retaliate sin for sin, uh, tooth for tooth, eye for eye. We love our enemies. When someone sins against us and hurts us in meaningful ways, there might be consequences, there might be ramifications, but we don't hold bitterness and a grudge and seek to get back at them. Instead, we obey Jesus when he says, pray for your enemies, love them, Pray even for those who persecute you. Give without expecting anything in return. These kinds of ways that his kingdom is different. You see this. Um, So we're called to take off the old way of doing things and put on the kingdom of God that is accessible to us. The new self the New Testament uses the language of. Um, this, this, this week, my family and I had to leave our apartment for a couple of days because they had to do some mold remediation. They had to rip out some wall ceiling stuff and put in new wall, repaint, all of that. And um, so they, they kind of seal off the, the rooms where it needed to happen. We came back to our apartment and unfortunately, dust was covering our bedroom and you could taste it in the air. I have allergies, so I was sneezing. It was, it was not great, right? To, to be in an environment that is opposed to us is something that we can't get away from. It affects us. And so we vacuumed and they sent someone to like dust off surfaces, but you could still kind of taste it in the air. This is really helpful because learning to follow Jesus and entering into that dimension of his kingdom is like operating in a new environment where the old one of the world was opposed to us, it broke down our sense of self into bits of fear and shame about being really known. We feel the guilt and the inability to give ourselves in love. Now we're swept up into a space, an environment in the kingdom of God that is at hand, that is in Jesus, that is empowered by his spirit. So those things that we were once allergic to in our being, now become possibilities for us in the beauty of heaven. See the difference there? See the difference there? Okay, I want to make sure that I want to make sure we get that. Now, we cleaned out our apartment. And um, I went for a walk last night, and suddenly I start sneezing again like crazy. I'm outside. I'm like, what is going on? Why can I not escape this? I start questioning, like, is it just something that's in the air generally now? Did I think that it was the apartment? And then I realize I'm walking around with a hoodie that was hanging up in our room, filled with dust. 
and I have my hood up. I love having my hood up when I'm walking, especially at night. I don't know what it is. My sons both love doing that now too. It's genetic, I have an excuse. And I realize the hoodie's filled with dust. So rather than just putting up with it, I take it off. And slowly, slowly, it's already in my system. It takes a while to kind of detox and clear it out. My sinuses clear up, I stop sneezing. The same thing is, is principally true when we're seeking to enter into the kingdom of God that Jesus made possible for us. Even though we are made new internally by the Spirit, we pick up our old habits and we wear them thinking, this is nice. We throw the hood on of our old ways of comforting ourselves when we're disappointed apart from going to God. And then we start sneezing and we feel like anxious all of a sudden. And we're like, wait a second. I believe Jesus' word when he says, don't be anxious. Your Father in heaven knows you. Why am I anxious right now? To be a human being is not to have some inner spirit that can believe in Jesus without a life that's actually attached to habits that reinforce the truths of Jesus. So when we pick up our old ways of living, when we cope with our loneliness through a variety of forms, pornography, whatever it might be, we feel the effects of that old way of doing things and we start sneezing when we're out on a walk in the beautiful dusk of night. Like, what's wrong? Jesus, why aren't you faithful to your promises? And the New Testament says, take off the old self. What I'm trying to say is, when we are seeking to follow Jesus in his kingdom, there is no way that we can say, this is just some inner spiritual thing where I believe in Jesus and live however we want without realizing there are real ramifications for our experience of God, for the life of our community, and for the hope of the kingdom going forward through us. That's why Jesus says, thirdly, repent and believe the gospel. Third observation, repent and believe the gospel. This word repent has kind of become loaded with this religious sense of guilt. But in the original context, it meant rethink. Metanoia, change your mind, think differently, rethink everything in the context of what Jesus is saying, because now God is here. You can live with him now. So we learn to take off the old ways of living that kept us that like cultivated a sense of peace in us, although they undid us in other ways. We no longer need to protect ourselves by storing up absurd amounts of wealth or satisfying our sense of purpose by achieving the highest heights of business or the corporate ladder so that we can think, I have achieved a worthy life. We believe the gospel. God's here. My greatest purpose in being a human is dedicating, devoting myself to rethinking everything that I could tangibly learn to live with Jesus here and now. That's what it means to believe the gospel. So, what is the gospel? Well, you'd be pretty safe to say the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's Jesus' gospel. It's what he came declaring and unpacking 
in the Sermon on the Mount and other places. Here's an attempt at summarizing the gospel for us. We could say that the, the real gospel is this, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the saving servant king who lived as one of us, defeated death through death and resurrection, and is now reigning over the cosmos to bring heaven to bear on earth through people who have surrendered their will to him, are committed to his ways, and are now ruled by his indwelling spirit to live and die with him for the glory of God, the life of the church, the good of our city. Those are the implications of what Jesus is saying there when he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, really briefly, three ways that this invites us to rethink or repent of old ways. Okay, three adjustments. If good theology is the kind of gospel theology that says the kingdom's here, I can live differently it forces us to rethink our lives, certainly our participation in the church, our discipleship to Jesus in three ways. The first one is dealing with God's person. It's going to be person, presence, and power. Okay, three things. Some of you are smirking because we've talked about this a lot. The first is God's person. The gospel tells us something radically profound and kind of produces some friction with common ideas about what God is like in our modern church Western context. The gospel doesn't just tell us what God has done. Many of you have been told in churches that the gospel is not about what you can do for God, but what God has done for you. And then you unpack a variety of ways where if we think long and hard enough about the gospel, we start to kind of psychologically readjust who we are, how loved we are, and then we live a life of gratitude based on what God did back then. Anyone heard this kind of, of gospel presentation? That is true. Remember, bad theology isn't just, man, throw everything out that you've heard. It's just not maintaining the tensions of what Scripture calls us to maintain. So while that is true, God did something that brought heaven to earth in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Absolutely true. The gospel also tells us who God is what he is like. Oh, amen. Lunch. <laughs> we need to rethink what we think about God in light of the gospel. God is the kind of person who is so full of love that he pours himself out in sacrifice that all who would come would enter into that. So when you have self-doubt, about whether you're lovable by God. And we start thinking about and recounting and the enemy accuses us. Certainly think back to the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin on the cross, defeating death, all of that. But remember too, that if God did that back then, the God who is unchanging here and now is the same loving God pouring himself out for you. He does not shame those who come into his presence. He pours out love on them. The reason this is so important for good gospel theology is because so often I'm sitting down with someone who's like, I just have such a hard time experiencing the reality of what Jesus says to me. I believe these things, but I don't feel them as true. 
is because when I ask them, how do you think God feels towards you right now? So often, they say disappointed. God's just disappointed with me. I know what I could be, and I know where I am. And the simple question is, for me, would the Jesus who laid his life down for you, well, you were still his enemy, Scripture says. Would the Father who gives his only Son, his one begotten Son for you, his most precious possession, into death, would he now on this side of all of that suddenly be disappointed with you? You see how that subtle shift changes everything about not only the approachability of God, but his desire to be thoroughly involved and powerfully working in us and through us. You see that? So the gospel, according to Jesus, means we need to rethink what we think about God's person. Second way that we need to make adjustments in the way that we live with God and one another. The second is God's presence. We often live um, as though we are in a God-deserted world. Uh, We're here in church, and we hear these things, and we say, great, that's awesome, and then we go out into the world, and we say, oh my gosh, God's not here. How could he possibly be here if my life's going this way? And we suddenly think we are all alone. We think we're left to our own resources. We think we're left to our own wit. And when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying the cosmos has been radically realtered. No matter what your eyes may tell you, no matter what thoughts may tell you, no matter what feelings may tell you, God is here. God is near. In fact, we live not in a God-deserted world, but a God-drenched world. His spirit has been poured out. And so, we're not left to our own resources. So when you see need, and you look at your bank account and go, how am I going to make my goals in two years if I meet this need? We remember, God is with me, and he owns everything. The cattle on a thousand hills. And the needs that he brings to my attention, and that my path crosses with, are his will for me. So, I'm going to believe him. And I'm going to step out on that scary limb of faith, because faith means embodied action believing in God. And I'm going to trust that he's going to meet me in it. And we watch as our wonder-working God blows us away. Um, The same thing with singleness. We live faithfully with God believing that even though we may feel the ache of our aloneness and that we pray, and we've been praying for years, God, would you bring me a spouse? And then someone comes along that shows some interest toward us, but they don't exactly love Jesus. They say they're a Christian. They attend a church every other month. Is that good enough? Living by faith is saying, Jesus, I trust you. I I need someone who will spur me on and whom I can spur on in following you. I can't be unequally yoked to someone else who is not actually committed to following you. And we, we live with community. We wrestle and we believe because we're not alone. 
We live in a God-drenched world. God's presence is here. It's actually within us by the Spirit. We rethink God's person, we rethink God's presence, and we rethink God's power. Um, what you think about Jesus and how he did what he did on earth directly correlates to, actually causes, what you believe God can do through you. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, Julie Canlis, I've said this before and you all laughed at me, I'm going to say it again, uh, summarizes it this way. The, Christ, the anthropological apple does not fall far from the Christological tree. Let me say that again. It's complicated. The anthropological apple, that is anthropology, the way that we think about us, does not fall far from the Christological tree. That is what we think about Jesus. Because who Jesus was in his humanity and who we are in our humanity with God are fundamentally tied together. Here's something some of you are like, he said we're going to laugh at that, then wasn't that funny. Um, it's okay. It's okay. Theology nerd jokes are funny to me. Um, here's why that matters. We all assume Jesus did all of the wondrous things he did out of his godness. We think, well, yeah, Jesus was God. Um, but in fact, the New Testament says that he emptied himself, that actually he, though he is and was God, set aside his active use of his godness and was a perfectly faithful worshiper of God. That's how he identified with us. Everything that he did, apart from what is explicitly said was done out of his godness, was done by the spirit-filled nature he had as a God-worshipper. That means, as we rethink the gospel, as we rethink what kind of person God is, we need to realize God has no lower ambition for your life than working the same kinds of things he worked through Jesus. And I realize there's a whole lot to unpack there, and we're not going to do it right now, but I want you to know theologically the power of God that is accessible to followers of Jesus who have learned the ways of walking in his presence and have learned the life of faith and are devoted to a Jesus-centered reality amidst a Jesus-centered people who are intent upon loving the people in their generation right around them can expect the God of the universe to pour out wondrous, unimaginable things through us. And sometimes it's very mundane, like acts of generosity. Other times it is absolutely unimaginable, like miraculous healing. That's why Jesus said, um, you will do greater works than these to his disciples. All right. Um, the cosmos has been reordered. The kingdom of God is at hand. Um, I want to end with this. This is a book called Dominion. It's like 580 pages long. It's written by a uh, self-pronounced agnostic named Tom Holland, a historian, a flippin' genius. And uh, he, the subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World.
Because some of you are hearing me say, Jesus' gospel is the kingdom of God is at hand and it changes everything. And in our moment, we're historically naive or even opposed, thinking that progress is the only way forward without realizing how history has been radically transformed by the gospel and the kingdom of God being here. And this book is all about how everything you and I believe is progress in Western society finds its roots in Jesus of Nazareth and the gospel being carried forth by people who identified as his followers. This was not written by a church historian. And so what I want to shatter is our prog liberal progressive narrative that says onward and upward, we know so much better than they did and the kingdom doesn't actually change all that much. This is how he ends the book. For 2,000 years, Christians have disputed this. Many of them over the course of this time have themselves become agents of terror. This is very eyes are opened to the complexity of history. They have put the weak in their shadow. They have brought suffering and persecution and slavery in their wake. Yet, the standards by which they stand condemned for this are themselves Christian. Even the very lens that we use to critique Christians and churches are Christian lenses that did not exist before Jesus Christ. Nor even if churches across the West continue to empty, does it seem likely that these standards will quickly change? He quotes, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is the myth that we in the West still persist in clinging to. Christendom in that sense remains Christendom still. Um, if anyone wants to read this, it's up here. You can take it home. As though you probably don't have enough reading to do if you're in grad school or something. Jesus came saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, rethink, and believe. And history has shown it is here. Okay? Believe. Trust. Pray with me. Jesus, we do ask that you would help us. Um, help us to believe that even though what our eyes and ears and hearts so often tell us that the news that we read in scripture is too good to be true, that in the mundane nitty gritty of living as humans in a still broken world that is being remade, um, please help us Holy Spirit to cling to the gospel that we would believe not just that forgiveness has been accomplished by Jesus, not just that heaven awaits us when we die, but that your spirit is, is intent on getting heaven into us and working heaven through us here and now. And so would you make us a church that believes the gospel in its big, vast cosmic sense and who participate in living out the gospel in our everyday lives all the same. We trust you, Holy Spirit. Um, we want to even sit for a moment and ask, how does this change or shift the way that we have been assuming our lives operate?
Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends. We get a transition.